this episode of STEM, let's try something very different. I'm going to tell some stories. Let's call them Tales from the Trials. We'll see how it goes. Walking through greenhouses and displays of innovative new plants at the 2019 California Spring Trials is inspirational. And that's where I'm at right now. So this podcast is somewhat live for the very first time. Well, not completely live since I'm actually in my hotel room, but live in a sense since it's day three of the trials and there are two more full days left. Seeing and learning about cutting-edge solutions for professional growers, garden center retailers, and landscapers and home gardeners is so exciting and the energy out here is amazingly high. And why wouldn't it be? I'm surrounded by product managers, plant breeders, and marketing managers who've worked for years to bring these amazing genetics and programs to market. For some, these trials are the first time that their new varieties are being unveiled after years or decades of work. The hours, sweat, and even tears have finally paid off. And behind every one of these introductions is a person or team, and subsequently, a story. The breeding, selection, trialing, testing, and vetting can take years. Most have been evaluated around the world and subjected to a wide variety of climates, production scenarios, disease screens, shipping trials, and so much more than most of us will ever see. The path to introduction is complex, and the effort required is monumental. For many new plants, the pipeline is established and the process has been perfected, but for others, the path is opportunistic. And for some, it involves outrunning baboons. No, seriously, outrunning baboons. But I'll get to that later. This episode, I'm going to share some stories learned at Spring Trials. Stories behind some of the newest plants on the market, and also from products you know and love. Stories about plants that almost never saw the light of day, but became garden staples. And in some cases, stories of plants you will never see, for all sorts of reasons. Okay, I'm starting with one you know very well, wave petunias, one of the industry's most recognized plants and one that's celebrating its 25th anniversary. But it almost didn't get commercially introduced, because it didn't have a home. The story goes that about 25 or 27 years ago, a breeder from the Japanese brewery Kirin was working on grapes in Brazil or Argentina and got bored. I guess breeding grapes isn't too exciting. And he walked into the hills to take a break, and there he spotted a wild petunia that was beautiful. And he took it back to his lab in Japan and worked on it to develop the first wave petunia. It then won an All-America Selection Award because of its tremendous performance. The problem was it needed to be produced commercially and sold, and none of the seed companies initially approached in North America had any interest, and they turned it down. Then one day, two folks at Ball Horticultural Company, Anna Ball and Jim Now, were walking the AAS trials and saw a beautiful carpet of plants, and they couldn't believe they weren't fake, and they got all excited about the potential for landscapes. Luckily, some of the Pan American seed leadership were heading to Japan that very week, and they took an extra day to visit Kirin Brewery to talk about this wild new plant. And the rest is history. Here's another good one, again about a plant that you'll recognize. A breeding project resulted in a begonia genetic that was considered far too big and vigorous for cell packs, which was how most begonias were sold back in the day, and it ended up being rejected. The person telling me the story said it was just too big for its time. Fast forward 10 or more years and an intern was working on a project for Pan American Seed's 50th anniversary in the late 1990s and began going through the seed archives to find interesting crops that the company had worked on over the years. 
they planted up some of the archive genetics and grew them out in a trial. With fresh eyes and a new market for more vigorous garden plants in pots instead of packs, the folks looking at the trial got excited about this rejected begonia and began promoting it to growers and retailers. So it was sold and produced and put into the market. The problem was it lacked retail appeal and didn't flower for peak spring sales and didn't sell through at the garden centers. So instead of throwing out the unsold plants, many of the retailers and even some growers took the begonias home and planted them at their own houses. Soon, Pan American started receiving phone calls about how fantastic this begonia was in landscapes and gardens, and demand began to grow. Now, millions of dragonwing begonia seeds are sold each year, and this amazing, blazing begonia has quite a following. So those are two great stories about plants we all know, and I think they represent clever vision and a good dose of luck. But every day, somewhere in the world, a plant expert is looking for the next big thing. And perhaps they're collecting seed or germplasm, and perhaps they're smuggling seed back to the lab tucked in the cuff of their pants. Yeah, someone told me that story, but I'll stop there. None of you have ever brought a seed back or wrapped a cutting in wet paper towels and jammed it in your suitcase, I'm sure. So the competition for new plants can be fierce. Breeding companies invest millions of dollars in research to develop market solutions and amazing new products. But sometimes plants are found in wild and remote places. One guy I asked about some interesting stories in breeding and selection had a whole table of people staring wide-eyed as he recounted a tale from Australia near the Glass Mountains. In search of new philodendrons under a cluster of fig trees, he heard movement and looked up to see what looked like little vampire children. Hanging upside down in the trees, attracted by the fruit, were giant fruit bats with three-foot wingspans that are referred to as flying foxes. Needless to say, he grabbed the plant and got out of there. Speaking of competition, a plant selector I talked to, actually the same guy who had to dodge the bats, visits and reads trials of drought-tolerant plants in Arizona behind an electric fence and razor wire. Why? Because the biggest pest problem that threatens those trials is javelinas that dig up the fields. According to Wikipedia, Javelinas are medium-sized, pig-like, hoofed mammals. They don't seem very friendly, and apparently they also like to ravage watermelon trials. The sheer numbers of plants breeders and product managers see before making variety decisions is astronomical. I found out that when introducing the new Galaxy series of vigorous geraniums, the ball floor plant team traveled 238,000 miles visiting trials. They collected 1 million data points, and they trialed 100,000 or more plants to introduce eight varieties. Breeders are brilliant and relentless. One million data points, that is a lot to crunch. But sometimes even the best and brightest make mistakes. One of our breeders, who shall remain nameless, was working for a different company, which shall also remain nameless, and had two long parent lists of clones from his most important breeding project. One list was to keep and the other was to dump. Yep, you guessed it. He switched them up and dumped an entire commercial series and delayed the entire project by two years. Oops. Talking to a grower about his big lavender introduction, I learned he was working with a local lavender farm who wanted him to propagate some cuttings, and the first crop came in late in the day and was actually too hot to transport, and the plants weren't looking too good. But he stuck them anyways, although he figured they would die. 
The grower went out a few days later to tell his staff to dump the crop, but spotted one tray in the middle of the field of melted plants. This tray had a few cuttings that looked amazing, so he held on to these few plants and found that they rooted really well. When he went to visit the farmer again, he saw a clump of lavender from about 250 feet away, basically a branch on a plant that once again looked amazing. It was the same variety. So this grower started propagating some more and grew out 1,500 gallons in a very harsh outdoor area. When his staff racked them up to transport them, he snapped a photo because they looked really good. And a few days later, when he looked at the photo again, it occurred to him that the perfectly uniform speck of those gallons would be ideal for mainstream production and retail programs. That was in 2013, and now that product has sold more than 6 million units in North America and is currently gaining global sales. Speaking of seeing plants in a field, a perennial breeder was making salvia crosses with old-time Nemorosa varieties as part of a large pollinator project. The product manager who told me the story was out walking the trial and saw a block of about 10 to 12 seedlings in a group of 5,000 that had bigger flowers than any others in the trial. In fact, he wasn't sure from a distance that they were even salvias, but they were, and the resulting plant was salvia blue marvel. A few crosses later resulted in salvia rose marble, and now between the two, Darwin Perennials is selling more than a million each year. Here's a great story about a plant you all know. It's about a rose, a shrubby rose with single flowers. The breeder showed it to all of the major rose companies in the world and was rejected over and over. And finally, the Conard Pile Company put in a trial and they weren't even impressed, but a young product manager saw potential and was given six months to try to bring it to market and find some interest. 20 years later and 200 million plants later, all North American gardeners and landscapers know the knockout rose. Knowing your market and understanding the challenges and pain points increases the chances of bringing a breakthrough to market. That was certainly the case for the CATS series of stock, which has become the staple stock series in California. When the breeder showed off his work, a stock that was 10 weeks earlier than the existing varieties, the response was basically, there is no way you'll be able to sell those more expensive seeds for a commodity crop like stock. But the team knew there was a need for a longer sales window and this earlier crop would be a major problem solver for growers looking to fill stores. Long story short, cat stock has gone from a no chance plant to a no brainer in less than 10 years. I have a few more, and they are awesome. When one of Ball's all-time rock star plant breeders, Ellen Loya, heard I was going to share breeding stories on the podcast, she sent me three more. I'm going to read them to you. Back around 1989, I made a cross between a rose-colored breeding line of Super Elfin Habit and a wild collection made by Kew Gardens, a botanic garden in the UK, of Impatiens usambarensis. The wild plant had just plain salmon-colored flowers. Amazingly, there were several plants in the F1 generation that were this crazy burgundy and orange color. We had never seen anything like it before, but we did some further breeding work and it became Super Elfin Sunrise, a color that has since left the market never to be seen again. As we tried to follow up with more breeding, we made various crosses with swirl colors and other solid colors. As we improved the flower size, floriferousness, and branching, we also began to see more striking combinations, picotees and splashes with color combos like violet and coral, rose and scarlet, cranberry and salmon orange. 
The weird thing was that although everything about the finished plant was getting better and better, the germination was getting worse and worse. And in the 90s, we were launching the 95% yield potential, 800 plus BVI standard, so the seed quality was a big deal. We never could fix it, and at the time, the vegetative guys weren't interested in anything but full double flowers. Second story, in the late 90s, we launched on a mission to create a blue impatience. We figured that some impatience have delphinidin, a good blue pigment, and we tested our range of germplasm for the pH of the vacuole and chose the most appropriate material. Then we launched into a mutation breeding project. A couple of generations later, we found a very striking mutant that had what is best described as just a bit more purple than dark navy blue. It was gorgeous and very distinct, but it always segregated out a gnarly, weak plant and we couldn't seem to get away from it. I think we tried for four years. Then we put a few rows out in the shade house and were shocked to see that all the flowers faded to an ugly tone, almost a bleached purple under pretty heavy shade. At that point, we gave up. Last story from Ellen. I was on a quest to make a mild habanero pepper and had collected several mild ones to cross. I found one that was nice and early to ripen, productive, loaded with fruit. I tasted it and it was quite mild, much less than a jalapeno. More than an Anaheim or a mild poblano, but very tasty. The next year, we were looking at it more closely to decide whether to introduce it, so I asked our product manager, Chenny Filios, to taste it and see if she liked the flavor. It almost burned her mouth off. Turns out, one of the parents was not fixed for the low pungency trait, so some plants made mild fruit, and others in the same hybrid were fiery. We moved on to another hybrid, which was uniform for mildness, and we hope to get that to market soon, as it is delicious. But to finish the story, Chenny never got me back for giving her the sweats, but she did accidentally pay it forward. Last summer, we were looking over the harvest from our yield trial with the Ball Executive Committee and talking about our upcoming seedless peppers. Chenny grabbed a yellow fruit and offered it to Anna Ball, and she took a big bite. Well, it turns out we also have a yellow-fruited hybrid that is extremely spicy and almost identical in looks to our very sweet seedless yellow snack. And you guessed it, she grabbed the wrong one by mistake. I'm not sure lighting your CEO on fire figuratively is the very best way to promote our vegetable breeding project. Thanks, Ellen. Those were great. So last but not least, let me tell you about the baboons that I mentioned early on. As you know, they are not friendly animals. They're known to be extremely violent, especially the males. But when you need germplasm from South Africa to breed succulents, you just have to dodge baboons. I'm not joking. A daring plant explorer I talked to literally told me that he had to move fast collecting succulents because you could hear the male baboons in the area chirping and getting anxious. I mean, I like succulents as much as the next guy, but you could not pay me enough to wrestle a baboon. For a cutting. So I hope you liked this fun episode. It was great hearing these stories and more, and what really sticks out to me is the passion with which they were told. The folks in our industry who breed and select plants are dedicated individuals who really know their stuff. Sometimes their years of hard work pay off big time and millions of plants are sold and sometimes the trials are thrown out or eaten by goats. That's a story I didn't even get a chance to tell. Goats eating a pansy trial in Holland. We'll have to save that for another episode. But no matter what, they keep at it in an effort to bring new technology to the world of horticulture year after year after year. 
When you see all the amazing new products coming to market in the weeks and months after California spring trials, remember that each product has a story. So how about you? Do you have a fun or unexpected plant breeding story to share? I'd love to hear it. Thanks so much for listening to STEM. Insider tips for greenhouse pros and special thanks for helping us surpass 8,000 downloads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to give it a good rating on your podcast player or better yet, write a quick review. This will help expose more potential listeners to STEM. I really appreciate the support. I'm Bill Calkins, and you can always reach me by email at bcalkins at ballhort.com, B-C-A-L-K-I-N-S at B-A-L-L-H-O-R-T dot com, or on Twitter at Bill Calkins. Be sure to follow Ball Seed on LinkedIn for tons of B2B content related to STEM topics, timely technical tips, and more. And now you can follow STEM Greenhouse Podcast on Instagram. That's STEM Greenhouse Podcast, all one term, for behind-the-scenes looks, sneak peeks, and all sorts of good stuff. Let's end this episode with a quote from marine biologist Edith Witter. Exploration is the engine that drives innovation. Innovation drives economic growth. So let's all go exploring. Exploring.